Uh, welcome to another episode of the Bears League Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Raman. On the podcast today, we have Jagmeet Sangha. Welcome, Jagmeet. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast in the lands of the Comox, Homoko, Klehus, and Klaaman First Nations, who were one nation before we settlers came in and created borders and separated them into reserves and did a whole bunch of other nasty things and kind of continue to. Um, but uh, grateful to be here on, on these unceded lands and hope I can do my part to make things better. Um, so, Jagmeet, maybe you just start by a little introduction. Tell me about yourself. Sure. Um, so, my name is Jagmeet. I am a BCBA. I've been in um, the direct field of supporting children and families with autism for about 15 years. And um, the last 10 years worked a little bit more um, through that OBM and ACT lens and supporting our team members and uh, really have just kind of fallen in love with the this idea of, of behavior analysis, behavior science being um, so much more powerful than I think what we box box ourselves into and um, how do we kind of use that to apply in, um, you know, within our leadership skills? And a lot of what I really like to do is really understand how can we um, support individuals beyond treatment? So how do we support them in the workplace? How do we um, create workplace environments um, that really have some of these tools that we have to offer as behavior analysts? Um, so, yeah, so that's a little bit about my background and a little bit about what I'm involved in right now. But what what made you get into working with folks with autism in the first uh, place? Yeah, I mean, back then, autism was not really heard of, right? And so just working um, in a school setting where, you know, there was two little children in my preschool setting that I was working at back then. Um, and the parents, you know, came to me and separately and were saying, oh, you know, there's this thing called autism. And you know, my kids are learning differently. And it was just really fascinating. And, um, you know, still remember working with these little ones that were just so kind and curious and just, you know, always had these wonderful new ideas of doing things and all this great energy. And, um, you know, just wanted to explore, you know, what are these things in terms of how do we create a a space in the education system, in the classroom to support a child who's thinking differently. Um, so that's how I originally got into um, this work. Right on. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll start. Uh, so so why why a focus on the workplace? Why, why is that something you've been doing? Yeah, I think that, you know, we all, our field is evolving. We There's a lot of conversations. I know you've had some great speakers on talking about that evolution. All of us should be conscious of that. Um, and as our field evolves and as we understand, you know, where we can be powerful in the work that we're doing, I just realized, hey, I've been doing this work for 15 years. And some of the early children that I worked with are now hitting the workplace but yet the workplace is still not ready for them. There is still so much of that uphill um, battle and that climb for individuals that may have received years of treatment, therapy, supports, accommodations. Um, but yet, you know, you know, there there's still so many struggles that they have to face. And so, how do we begin to start to think about it differently? And 
maybe there's it's time that we need to be creating more of that space within the workplace um, to understand what these needs are in a general term instead of you know having that onus on that one individual to have to accommodate to that setting. Um, and the workplace is powerful. You know, we all have a job in some capacity and if all of a sudden you go to work and your boss or your team starts talking about autism, neurodiversity, brain-based differences in a more accepting manner, and then you begin to hear this in a different light, it can really change the stigma and the fear and this, um, you know, the the idea that we have around some of these labels. And so, you know, having these conversations in the work, I believe can really change the way that our society responds to um, some of these brain-based differences. So are, are employers having those conversations? Yeah, I've actually worked with employers um, especially employers that have maybe employee resource groups or, you know, a special interest group in that employment setting that are really pushing for some of these topics. I've worked with some really amazing groups that, um, you know, there's working parents that are looking for tools on how to, you know, maybe manage both working full time and, you know, having that career, but then also having a loved one at home. Um, that has you know special needs or has um, you know some differences that they're having to navigate through. Um, there's also employers that want to know, even just on their team, how they can actually become better employers and create that space for somebody that's on their team um, that is disclosing to them, or maybe not even disclosing to them that you know the team member has autism or ADHD or you know is struggling in different ways. But how can they create proactively create these environments for them? Hmm. And 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 is this a role for? We I mean, don't we don't hear a lot about employment in sort of ABA land. Uh, uh, I don't hear about. I mean, I don't do a lot of work in sort of early intervention circles, but I don't hear a lot about sort of the goal of. You know, interventions to result in folks being employable and that sort of thing. Um, it's like, so what's what's sort of the role for BCBAs and all this stuff? Yeah, there's a lot of space that you know when I'm you know, just kind of getting started in this and just trying to understand how. You know, my work is more like, let me go in, let me do some workshops, let me bring some education and awareness about this. Um, but through that, starting to get some referrals of, you know, can you do job coaching? Um, can you, you know, work one-to-one -one with this, you know, um, individual to help them get, gain employment? Um, or, you know, doing some support, even on the employer end of like, is there a way to incorporate the concept of neurodiversity in the DEI and B initiative. Um, surprisingly, that was missed. That was a big part of the DEI initiative that shouldn't have been missed. But, you know, there's a lot of curiosity right now from the different um, companies that I've been engaging with of how does this really fit in and what are the ways that we can kind of make this work? And, you know, through the presentations, through the um, any of the offerings that, you know, or any of the engagement really boils back down to those ABA basics. Like how do we 
how do we implement kind of more that OBM framework for this employer to create those clear expectations, to um, track that performance, to really, um, you know, be understanding in terms of what that employee needs, but then also really kind of holding those um, expectations or those goals clear enough um, so that way somebody can be achieving them. And there's, then there's a lot of ACT for anyone that's really into ACT with the understanding where that self-awareness piece comes in is what are our biases in terms of our, our personal understanding of what somebody's capability is or um, how somebody fits into this box. And so how do we, you know, again, apply ACT to ourselves to show up as leaders or employers or employees um, to kind of support within that space? So what's that look like for you? Like, I mean, like, are employers, are employers seeking you out? Is this families who have sort of adult children that are, they want to find work and they're, they're looking for you to make those connections? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you do all this? Yeah, um, it's exciting. I think it's, you know, just getting starting and starting in different ways. And, you know, my work that I'm doing with my private consulting, behavior pivot consulting is going into um, different workplaces and doing these workshops. And so that can come in various ways. I've had people reach out to me because they, um, you know, saw a presentation or heard of any, you know, some of my work, maybe through the local chamber of commerce or right. you know, the local business kind of groups that I'm affiliated with. Um, and then, yes, I am starting to give families that are calling and saying, hey, I need job coaching, you know, for um, my 30 year old child who still needs some sort of support and has these great aspirations, but just needs a behavior plan to really get themselves to be in the field or achieve. Everyone wants to have control of their life to make their own choices, decisions and set goals that are meaningful and important to them. And students who are neurodivergent are no exception. Self-determined research indicates a host of positive quality of life outcomes for people who are neurodivergent, including better employment and independent living outcomes. Whether your students want to attend college or obtain employment after high school, they will need to acquire the skills necessary to pursue career life directions that are personally meaningful and are of their own volition. The self-determination course offered by CBI is an ideal tool for teachers to help students develop the essential competencies for self-determined behavior. The course consists of five modules with comprehensive lesson plans that are, include embedded resources easily adapted for your diverse learners. Using the built-in self-reflection and assessment exercises, teachers can assess students' growth towards their self-determination and self-advocacy behaviors. If you're interested in learning more, check out the CBI Consultants webpage at www.cbiconsultants.com. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is South. Do those goals. And that work I'm doing mostly with um, Behavior Management Solutions, a very small company here in the East Bay. Um, and they do amazing work, you know, BCBAs, RBTs, and kind of that standard ABA um, kind of setup. But how do mm. we 
support beyond early intervention? How do we do the job coaching? How do we work with these young adults um, on that one-to-one end while still we're making kind of space um, within employment um, to kind of kind of create that space together in that way? So say you get you have a just an ex- a family and they've got a you know like I said a thirty year old son or daughter autistic daughter and they want to help them get a job. What 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 do you do? What are you doing with them? What's that look like? What's that conceptualization of the case kind of look like? Yeah, I mean conceptually we would look at this just like another kind of start with an FBA of you know what are some of these goals. Um, self-determination is a big part of these conversations is that what is it that you want to be working towards and what are your goals or aspirations or um, you know what are the things that you're really passionate or interested about and so you know starting by identifying those setting those short-term goals you know what are the barriers in terms of you getting that employment is it you know the uh, logistics of applying for a job or is it um, you know fears around socializing or showing up for an interview, um, being able to kind of break down that those steps in understanding how we can kind of put that bigger picture together. And so again, using that kind of framework of an FBA of starting with, you know, what the baseline looks like, you know, what are we working towards? What are these short-term, long-term goals? Um, and then kind of measuring them as we go with the individual and the young adults um, kind of being the driver and in the driver's seat of that, of having them kind of um, do a lot more self-management, you know, having that accountability in terms of, you know, is this still a reasonable goal for me? Is it not? And, you know, how do we make that happen? Hmm. So, so what do you mean by, by self-determination? What's that about? Yeah, um, there's definitely the more of a push, especially here in California, that um, families should be able to identify services that best meets the needs of their um, their personal needs. And so, again, mm. you know, who are the vendors that you want to be working with around these areas? Um, and so it's kind of an offshoot from the regional center kind of funded supports versus like, hey, these are the vendors that you have. They're vendorized with the regional center and these are your options versus hey, I want to try something different. And I, I want to be, again, in that driver's seat. And I'm, um, you know, self-advocating almost for, you know, this type of service for me because it's going to be a good fit. And so that self-determination kind of pivots the conversation towards, I'm going to be working with this coach or I'm working with this, um, you know, speech therapist or, you know, whoever it is that's outside of maybe who's um, vendorized already. And it, I think if the the power lies in this ability to make that choice. And then if you're already making that choice and you're a little bit more committed and that buy-in already is there in terms of saying, yes, these are the goals that I'm going to be working towards. Um, and so just getting started in this phase and just trying to understand and navigate the system myself, still not very fluent in it yet at mm-hmm. all. Um, but it's been exciting to see, you know, uh, when these, you know, cases are coming to us or these individuals are coming, there's a deep level of this is what I want to achieve. And it's not just, okay, we're starting services. It's, this is what, these are my aspirations already. And how are you as a service provider going to help me get there? 
And so we talk about self-determination. You're, you're talking about the the job seeker, or are you talking about the family? Or are you mostly from the family perspective or the family end? So families mm. coming and um, having that self-determination or that ability to identify a provider that they're that they want to work with. Okay. And sorry, just for lingo, I'm Canadian. What do you mean by the vendors and all that stuff? What are you talking about there? Yeah, so uh, vendors just being an agency that's um, maybe you could say authorized or credentialed or kind of tied mm. to you know that funding source, so whether it's regional center or insurance, um, so that they're um, the the service provider that's linked to the that organization. So are these like service providers that provide this kind of employment service? Is that what you mean, or? Yeah, so um, job coaches can be vendorized with the regional, mm. and so they, um, you know, they're providing job coaching, and so they are funded by the regional center. And so, if a family member is looking for that, and they would say, "Okay, these are the list of the approved names of job coaches that you know we can um, have you work with." Mm. And and is this stuff? I mean, obviously, you can just speak to California. Maybe you can speak more than that. Is this stuff kind of funded for folks? I mean, I know there's lots of funding for ABA and autism services, but you know, you think being able to get a job and be become more self sufficient and eventually not need funding at all because you're making your own money would be something folks would want to you know support. Uh, so, is there funding you know for the job coach and those sorts of folks? I'm navigating it as we speak. I'm discovered, yeah. you know, a little bit through the self-determination program. There sounds mm. like there. Um, a little bit through here in California, the Department of Rehabilitation. Um, it sounds like there's funding for job coaches there. Um mm. so there seems to be a little bit, but I from what I also know, there's not a you know, a significant um curriculum or requirement that a job coach needs to have and so mm. my kind of behavioral analytical lens i mean it just makes sense that bcbas have this space to really you know come in from that perspective of how do we set goals how do we achieve goals how do we identify you know what somebody's working towards and it sounds like that's definitely something you know bcbas can play a big part in kind of mm-hmm. help you know, individuals to that next chapter um, and having them be successful there. So in my research, I I do think that there's a lot of Canadian job coaches. Um, I've been finding a lot more when I linked with people on LinkedIn. There's a lot more folks out there in UK. Just haven't found too many out um, here in California yet. Well, I was going to say, so I... I, uh... Uh, my company, uh, it's called CBI Consultants, uh, and they're the ones that uh, kindly produce this podcast for me. Um, uh, in addition, they're kind of doing, you know, kind of stand, kind of PBS kind of services and whatnot. We have a, a wing of, uh, we have two sort of departments that are entirely focused on employment. Um, uh, customized employment kind of is one sort of area and then there's another one that's sort of another wing kind of where they do some national kind of job supports but but yeah customized employment seems to be that framework kind of coming out of um 
uh, some of that old uh, Mark Gold stuff from uh, the 70s. And and then eventually it became Mark Gold and Associates. And I think uh, another fella took it over after Mark Gold passed away in the 70s and and kind of kept doing the whole... Um, you know, you know what I mean when I talk about Mark Gold? And uh, so, okay, so Mark, sorry. So Mark Gold, great guy. Look at my Mark with a C. Um, uh, he's... Uh, He's an amazing guy in the 70s. Like he was way ahead of his game um, in terms of seeing the potential uh, for folks with uh, developmental disabilities, especially those that were kind of, you know, on the more sort of severe end of things. Um, and he had this this program he called Try Another Way. Um, and essentially he that was his verbal prompt when he and, and he and he taught uh, these folks that you know, typically would probably end up in an institution and uh, and sort of be thought of as, you know, useless, probably by society. Um, he taught them how to how to put together complex bicycle parts by hand uh, for a bike company to sort of assemble their products, um, um, stuff that I couldn't even do. Um, and um, and they did it like with, you know, fine work. It was like, it comes to clock making um, using, essentially using kind of task analysis and and whatnot. Um, uh, I, uh, I know a lot of it was kind of based on, on kind of this book here from way back in the day. Uh, I won't read the title because some of those words aren't really appropriate anymore. But, um, um, but essentially he was one of the earliest sort of advocate, uh, sort of advocates for uh, employment for folks with really kind of severe disabilities. And uh, over time, I've, his company, I think, developed this sort of customized employment sort of framework um, for helping folks uh, essentially uh, carve out jobs in companies that didn't exist, um, that met the strengths and need and, and strengths and sort of um, skills of a particular individual. So I think like one example that they often use is um, is is a bank where they have you have bank tellers that um, you know their main job, of course, is to provide financial services to customers, but they're also doing things like emptying garbages and sweeping and tidying up and you know, and sort of janitorial work uh, because they don't have a custodian working there. And so the, the customized employment job coach goes in and says, listen, I got a person that loves emptying garbages and, and sweeping floors. It's he, 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 he gets high off of it. He just loves it. Um, would you be willing to pay him 10 bucks an hour versus the 30 bucks an hour you're paying this, this bag teller? to come in and clean and um, that's essential and they build relationships with these companies and so on and basically uh, create jobs for these folks and it's uh, but you're right in BC in particular British Columbia where I'm at there seems to be like the most job coaches sort of in the whole country and I'm not sure why I'm not sure what's going on in our province that there's all this all these services available but yeah yeah no that's really fascinating and you know I I am you know, beginning to network and collaborate with some, you know, local within California and just kind of my space, but similar, you know, adult school here in my hometown, they're, you know, having this internship program. So similar to what you're saying is how do we get um, our adults with intellectual disabilities into that employment sector and have a um, internship that is, again, funded by the regional center? 
but mm-hmm. the employer just would, you know, be able to give them an opportunity and give them that training and bring them on board. And just starting to work with that team and hearing the success stories and kind of what you mentioned earlier in terms of the level of independence of the students that are getting these opportunities and the pride that they feel working there and um, the ways that the educators are supporting those that development. Um, and so that that's been really, you know, amazing for me to see and just kind of witness and just just get started in starting to see, you know, what the impact there can really be. Um, mm. But it goes a long way. Now you have an employer, you have an entire workforce and this team that is now interacting with somebody that may not have received this type of experience before. And now those employees may have family members, you know, or their children at home that, you know, have, you know, different needs. Mm. They're mm. starting to see this possibility that mm. we this person can do this, maybe my child or my niece, nephew, anyone else, maybe they have an opportunity as well. And so I think that it goes beyond even just that individual um, becoming independent and self-sufficient. It really sets a tone of how our society can begin to start thinking about disability and the ways that we can really um, achieve, you know, different, different things. Mm. Right on, right on. I saw a reference that I think in one of your presentations to sort of uh, to something called that the competitive advantage of neurodivergent teams. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of big tech companies, not just tech companies, but bigger companies, um, JP Morgan Chase, there's, you know, a lot of, you know, that entire industry that's starting to recognize, and this is not a new phenomenon. I think it's just for me, as I kind of got into this uh, less than a year ago, really starting to do that research of, you know, there's got to be space already where people are, are realizing there is an abundance of talent in these minds that sometimes are not given an opportunity in that traditional setting. And so um, JP Morgan Chase, Hewlett Packard, there are some companies that I've referenced there, that they have, you know, specific hiring programs. Um, Mm. Also where, you know, they're hiring individuals that may be autistic or have neurodivergent kind of minds. And, you know, they're starting to see the level of productivity, uh, which is greater than their, you know, typical kind of work colleagues. Um, The commitment, the kind of retention, and just kind of even the focus, right? Just like you said, like creating that TA and saying these are the expectations or this is the skill set that we're looking for. Um, so there's a lot of that competitive advantage that's being discussed or highlighted in terms of how companies can really benefit. Because when you're pitching this idea that you know companies say, "Oh, that's nice to have, that's great," like, but we don't, you know, how is this going to affect us as a business? Well, there's mm. a lot of great business kind of bottom line kind of um you know pluses that you can get by hiring someone whose mind is different than yours or different than from your entire team you're going to get access to a whole lot of new perspectives a whole lot of different ideas or ways of doing things um and all of that can really be very impactful 
Um, and so a lot of these companies that I just mentioned, um, they're starting to see that, measure that success, and then also um, figure out how do you then create that psychological safety where you're still protecting you know, an individual that um, may need certain accommodations or they may have certain needs. Um, you still want to be sure that employee wellness and employees are taken care of. Um, and since it doesn't end at that bottom line or that competitive advantage, um, in order for somebody to stick with their employer, they really need to have that safe space um, to make that work as well. Yeah. And I've heard I've heard a lot about that and, 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 and certainly have no argument against it. I mean, I think there's a lot of advantages to having, you know, I mean, just a, a wide intersection of people working for your company. It's not just neurodiverse folks, of course. Uh, but neurodiversity, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of great examples of how folks who are neurodiverse are, you know, in some ways, even more productive than for the folks that aren't and, you know, more focused on tasks um, and those sorts of things. For sure, some accommodations are needed. Um, uh, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, so I think certainly if, if you're, uh, you know, working with a company and you know teaching them about neurodiversity and and then maybe even wearing your other hat and working as a job coach and having that relationship with those companies that there's probably something there as well i mean I'm, I'm sure you can probably help families even get jobs in some of these companies that you're doing work with um and you know and they're all up for doing those supports but then at the same time i've also heard a lot about um and this is more kind of, I think, in, in kind of ABA circles, uh, because I talk to a lot of professionals in their field, that a lot of folks are afraid to disclose their neurodiversity to their employers. So you kind of got this one side where it's, you know, folks need help actually getting a job and keeping a job and getting that coaching done. And, you know, maybe there's some more, I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but more visible disability or visible indications of disability um, um and so and then the employer is aware and there's that support happening but then there's this other kind of group of folks that were able to get the job on their own didn't need job coaching didn't need support probably needed accommodations but um are have been sort of afraid to disclose or afraid to um you know, ask for accommodations, certainly don't talk about it. I've also heard language of not disclosing until you've passed your probation or whatnot, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, how do you kind of, do you do kind of work there as well to sort of help companies support their current employees that might be neurodiverse? Yeah, that's a really, really, and that's kind of the point that I'm, really fascinated about as well is that how do you there's so many individuals adults you know professional successful established adults that are saying you know I'm you know self-diagnosed in you know autism or I am going through a diagnosis or my child recently was diagnosed and I'm starting to see a lot of similarities um, and there's a lot more of that coming out. I have not yet been able to get hands-on actual data in terms of what those numbers look like. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of it is because it's so dynamic right now, where you know you see it constantly and everywhere, every conversation that I'm having. Um, you know, it was fascinating to me that you know I was at a chamber meeting thinking, gosh, nobody's gonna want to hear this topic. I'm feeling a mm -hmm. little and I started talking, and every single hand in the room went up saying, 
yeah, you know, we need to know more as employers, as business owners, local in the community. Mm. This is happening to me personally, or it's happening in my space, or it's happening around me. And I'm familiar with this idea that we have successful adults with careers that are starting to identify that there is a need, or they've always Mm -hmm. had a need, or they've always been different in that way. And how do you create that belonging? And so, you know, with the education that I try to promote, it's not this idea that we need more um, disclosure, but this idea is how do we create these environments that don't need the need or have the need for disclosure. And if you are talking about autism as being something to celebrate it or autism as neurodivergent minds as something that's a competitive advantage or something that's wonderful, that's beautiful, you know, then there's more of that space to say, yeah, my mind thinks differently, or I'm thinking about this problem in this way, or how can I bring in my um, perspectives or my different different thoughts to this complex issue that we're discussing. And so naturally, there's more opportunity to engage in that type of conversation or in that dialogue versus feeling, well, wait a minute, I'm not thinking the way that everybody else is thinking, or I'm not understanding the way that everyone else is understanding. And, you know, there's simple ways of doing that. You know, when you're having meetings, making visuals available or having meeting notes available or, you know, asking people what is their method of communication. We did a really cool exercise for a company that has amazing retention and it was a small team. And some of them had been working together for years, five, six, seven years. And we went around and asked everyone their modes of communication or communication modalities that they prefer. And, you know, there was people that were surprised of like, oh, didn't realize that that's what you prefer. Well, now it makes mm-hmm. sense that you don't ever respond to me when I'm, you know, sending you a text or dropping mm-hmm. off at your office. And, you know, those small things can go a long way in terms of how you um, connect with others and how do you create safety for others. Um, And just by doing those gestures on a regular basis, you're then automatically creating space for somebody to say, I'm thinking about this differently. And can I talk to you about how I'm thinking this? Or Mm. is there a space for me to, you know, be creative and unleash that authentic kind of perspective um, in the problems that we're working on? Yeah, no, and this is good. I, you know, I was thinking about, got me thinking about an interview I did a while back with Dr. Noor Syed, and she was talking about, um, um, she does a lot of work around inclusion and whatnot, and and she's working at, where is it, in New York, it's um, um, City University of New York, one of the campuses there, and um, and they've started a Uh, kind of a, what what she called it, it was basically an autistic college kind of within the university that um, um, is intended to sort of provide supports and accommodations to folks without them disclosing their diagnosis. Um, um, because the pressure to, to disclose, I think, is often... You know, asking for accommodations isn't isn't necessarily the stressful part. It's saying I want accommodations because I'm autistic. I want accommodations because I have you know obsessive compulsive disorder or whatever going on here, or I have sensory issues or so on. Um, 
and trying to create a culture where, and I think, I think that's what you're trying to, you're saying is trying to create a culture in, in a company where, you know, the employer is actually empowering folks to, you know, to, to choose accommodations that they might need without, you know, having to say why they need them. Yeah, there's a lot more efforts that I'm seeing, you know, at that college level as well. Um, and I'm less familiar with it, but there is certainly more of that, you know, when you look at that universal design of learning and that framework, yeah. how do we incorporate everyone in that classroom versus yeah. saying, well, this child or this individual or this adult needs this to be successful? Well, maybe we just have those, you know, baked into the are teaching or baked into the workplace already. Um, and sometimes, you know, it can get overwhelming to think, well, how many different things do we need to think about? But it's really not that much. I mean, sometimes even when we think about the, you know, simplest stuff, like you're watching a movie and you have closed captioning, right? I mean, that's an accommodation, but now I have closed captioning on all the time. It just helps yep. me follow along. It's Same. just it's easier, you know, and you think about an elevator versus stairs and, you know, there's so many things. I mean, if there's elevator or stairs, and if I'm not being conscious about my steps, I will take the elevator. And so if we start to remove the pressure about what accommodations really are, mm -hmm. it's easier for us to, first of all, recognize the accommodations that we all have in our daily lives already mm -hmm. that we are very dependent on. Um, you know, even wearing eyeglasses for somebody who needs eyeglasses, taking a legal break you know, every every state has, you know, different kind of requirements of that 10 minute break or that lunch break when it needs to be. And now this is a legal contract um, mm. that employers must abide by. Mm -hmm. And we don't get pushed back on that. We say, OK, yeah, this is what we need to do. True. Why do we need these breaks? Because our bodies need time to you know rest or have a bio break or have food. And mm -hmm. we take this as a grain of salt in terms of, of course, we need that. And so when we start to think about hmm. our brain, we start to think about what our brains need to be to working at full capacity or really, um, you know, maintaining in that creative state and feeling okay about it, we can bake in a lot of these accommodations and remove that stress um, as employers or edu educate educators um, and, you know, make it available readily for everyone. Hmm. No, I love that. I mean, that's, I think that's a great thing that all employers should be doing. You talked about something earlier, um, uh, a term that I didn't recognize, these employee resource groups. What are those? Yeah, employee resource groups, um, ERGs. There's also, um, I'm losing the other hmm. employee, what is it, the EAPs. So different ways of, you know, maybe small groups created and larger organizations. Mm. Uh, for example, this um, company that I was working with, they had uh, the working parents group. And so this was mm. everyone in this massive organization that needed that community or to identify um, to a group of working parents. Mm. Um, they, I went back to that same group when they celebrated, um, they did a Mother's Day type of event. And so there was, you know, working mothers or, you know, whatnot. And so there's efforts to create this community across these large organizations, even small organizations. Mm. Um, you know, there's, we know community and connection is so powerful at, at any level. 
And these groups often um, promote like-mind conversations. Um, they'll have, you know, um, workshops or guest speakers, or maybe they do events together, whatever the organization kind of decides or this group decides. Mm. And so um, they're pretty common from what I'm discovering. Um, so, you know, being able to really tap into some of these groups and really understand maybe there's room for education um, to this particular group that can then create that ripple of, okay, this is what I've learned here. or These are the tools that were helpful for me and how mm -hmm. do I incorporate them into my working or my professional life? So is this something that a company has to sort of, you know, actively encourage folks to create or are these, are these just sort of, you know, me, me and me and Billy are, you know, have ADHD. And so we decided to get together and form our own little group and make recommendations to the boss. That's a great question. I'm not familiar as much of how some of these groups are created. Mm. I am familiar with an organization that I did work with and, you know, we would have these, you know, it was kind of led by that HR um, kind of team, but right. these groups of, you know, do you want to do kind of like a wellness challenge this week? Do you want to, mm. Focus on increasing your steps. Do you want to, you know, you know, have hmm. these different fun ways um, to do, you know, different things? There was also, you know, how do we get together and read journals about, you know, ABA or what are different um, familiar topics that everyone in this group would want to do? Um, and really just efforts to create that community and that connection, especially as organizations get larger and you naturally lose that day-to-day -day organic connection. And so being able to get everyone um, to, to get together um, in that way. Hmm. Hmm, that's cool. Definitely a lot of, a lot of terms to look up and learn more about. Do you know, I mean, I, I mean, I know you're kind of newer in this sort of area yourself um, and, and still learning, but from what you've done so far, do, do you kind of any recommendations for behavior analysts, you know, in particular um, around training or mentorship or whatever that they might want to take to sort of learn more about this space? Yeah, uh, I think for me, I'm still in the training and learning phase myself. Yeah. If anybody is interested, I'm always happy to talk. Um, what was really valuable for me was that I joined um, Stanford's kind of initiative around neurodiversity and employment. Um, they have a large kind of um, neurodiversity kind of lab or, mm. you know, that <laughs> they were having regular meetings um, to develop an actual job coaching curriculum because, like I mentioned, wow. nothing really exists yet. And so those meetings were really, really helpful. That's when I realized Canada has a large presence in job coaches, um, got to hear from some really amazing people um, that are doing some of the work. And they were kind of putting together this task force of, you know, professional service providers, individuals, parents, I mean, just making sure that um, it's more of a, you know, kind of well-rounded group that's going to be creating this job training or job coaching curriculum. Um, I try to attend any topic on this. And so if there's webinars that are happening by Stanford, they put up to put together really, really great resources. And I can send that link to you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so anything that's happening there, they have two conferences, actually one in September and one in October that's coming up uh, around um, neurodiversity kind of employment efforts and how do we. This is Stanford that has them coming up? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So those are great. Um, I did attend another conference um, earlier this year by, I think it was Jobs for Humanity, again, doing some really powerful work and getting, um, you know, pushing for employment for different groups of individuals, not just neurodivergent minds, but um, maybe, uh, you know, this this organization was also working for, you know, supporting refugees and getting employment, mm. um, you know, for someone that doesn't have the resources. Yes. To- so I think that for me, any learning opportunity is something that I value tremendously because I, I by no means am I a, an expert in this today or even in five years or 10 years, because by the time mm-hmm. I learn and I start to apply, it's natural that things are going to change and it's yeah. natural that there's more information coming out. Um, and then, you know, primarily listening to autistic voices, that is so powerful. And I've been you know, partnering with different um, individuals that are, you know, self-advocates and they themselves are sharing their experiences or their perspectives. Um, And that's been really powerful and also helpful for me to understand what is the framework that I need when I'm talking to companies, when I'm talking to, you know, families or job seekers themselves. Um, So that helps me a lot. Hmm. Yeah, really cool. Really cool. Um, all right, well, let's shift over to the other, other side of your world. Uh, well, there's a few sides I know, but, uh, one of the other side that I've been hearing a lot about, and that's your kind of work in the South Asian community. Um, before we even do that, um, I mean, it, it's a, it's a familiar term to me for sure. Living where I live with, uh, you know, uh, the second secret word is gold. In kind of British Columbia, we've got a pretty, pretty, pretty massive South Asian community. I think probably one of the biggest um, um, uh, around. Um, um, uh, in kind of, and certainly in, in Canada, anyway. Um, what what? It seems obvious, but what? But what? What does what does South Asian even mean? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, like you mentioned. Because south, south is, well, south is everywhere that's not north, but where does that start? You know, so. Yeah. Um, so South Asia, definitely um, there's India, there's Nepal, and I'm actually going to not say all of these correctly. That's okay. Nepal, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka. Mm. Uh, there's kind of this component. So if you're looking at Asia and you just kind of see the south of the towards the bottom, that tip, definitely the tip of India. So all of India. Mm-hmm. Um, so it includes this kind of this this radius or this bubble there where, you know, these are communities, um, you know, have similar um, cultures, you can say, but still tremendously different. <laughs> and yeah, so beautiful. And I think that, you know, when we're talking about South Asia, you have to, there's so many ways that you can kind of zoom out and say, okay, you know, um, these are communities that have more of a, um, 
what is it? It's not individualistic kind of upbringing that, you know, they're relying on their entire um, collective kind of um, perspectives of the family unit. There's so many similarities in terms of those values, mm. but then you kind of zoom in just a little bit and you will see languages and food and dress and religion is completely different. I mean, you can put, you know, multiple Indians in a room or multiple South Asians in a room and have them speak their own dialect and they may not be able to understand each other at all. Mm. Um, so there's, you know, having to be careful in terms of there's so many similarities, but there's so many countries there, you know, there's a lot to incorporate within that South Asian um, kind of, you know, group. And then how do you really identify specifically you know, one community. And then from that community, there's a family and then there's an individual. So just being really sensitive mm -hmm. um, to the diverse needs, even just within that population. Yeah, no, I think that's really important because I wanted to ask that question because, you know, and even for me, I think, you know, the bias in me was like South Asia is just India. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, especially with India now being, you know, the most populated country in the planet. Um, um, it, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of just say, well, it's just India. Uh, but it's also easy to say that India, everyone's the same, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, and uh, but to know that not only is there a whole ton of diversity in India, but you also have a bunch of other countries that are doing completely different things that just geographically happen to be in South Asia, which is, you know, and who, who even knows who sort of determined what those borders and lines were um and initially so what's what uh what kind of work do you do with the south asian community yeah my work within that community is more um any opportunity that i can get to kind of again talk about removing stigmas especially of autism and mm. that component of educating about what it is neurodiversity and it really kind of leads from this idea is that I'm I'm from India. I was born in India. I'm mm. Punjabi, so Punjab is northern India. Mm. I speak Punjabi. I you know really want to promote you know what are the different ways that of my professional life and you know the work that I do and that I'm very passionate about and also connected to the community that I belong to and I de identify with. Mm. And so really kind of just started off with this idea that when I first entered the field, you know. Um, people would come and say, oh, you know, I heard you, you know, work with children with autism and I want to talk to you about autism. And it was very kind of like this, can we have this secret conversation? And mm. I feel that I can trust you because you already do this work in it. And I started to see this pattern over time is that yes, identifying as a professional was beyond powerful, not just for me in terms of doing this work and learning and really, you know, doing something that I love. But also, how did it really translate to somebody in my community um, and mm. becoming this resource for someone that may not feel comfortable talking about this or seeking support? And, you know, a big value of South Asians, I can say this very generally, is that professional and that career achievement and those, you know, professional aspirations um, for themselves and for their children. And so I, I find this connection is that if we can get a lot more South Asian service providers 
we can then again get a lot more of the stigma removed because all of a sudden everyone in their family will have this professional that's working in this field or mm. in contact in this field. And maybe there will be more of that ability to say, you know, this is someone that I trust and let me talk to them about it. And let me really understand what you know the autism is or brain-based differences are. And then how can I use that to support my child or even support myself um, in these different ways? So my my kind of work in that is more, if somebody wants to talk to me about it, I can talk for days. Um, mm. I don't have a professional platform on that, but I, I do a lot of conferences, a lot of outreach and kind of grassroots efforts to promote that. And so you talked about stigma, like it is, and it's good and it's going to be different, you know, certainly in maybe in home countries versus over here. Although I think there'll be some similarities, especially if they're the new immigrants or whatever. Um, but what is there sort of a, what sort of maybe autism and just sort of disability in general? What are kind of the percept the perceptions of disability and kind of autism in in some of these kind of countries? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot more research um, that I'm coming across in terms of um, when there's maybe a behavioral kind of disorder or a behavioral challenge. You can say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the South Asian perspectives are, you know, this is more of a, you know, this is the destiny of the child or the family, or this is because of upbringing or because of parenting styles, mm. um, you know, and there's this not a real belief that, okay, let's seek support for this. It's more just kind of like this child is behaving this way because you're doing this, or that's just um, karma in terms of why they're doing that. And being able to kind of surpass that and then kind of getting into, you know, recognizing what maybe some of these delays are. Um, there's research that kind of points to um, talking about, you know, South Asian families may not really recognize developmental delays. Um, mm. They recognize the social difficulties that their child is having, having, but maybe some of those milestones are really missed early on. So with within communication or these different developmental kind of um, achievements or marks within the early childhood, they may not be recognized right away. And so therefore it delays, again, seeking um, a diagnosis. And then once a diagnosis is even, um, you know, pursued, we know a lot that our, our diagnosis kind of um, criteria is not really suitable for all cultures. And mm. I think so you had a guest on talking about that is that we're still kind of, we have a Western perspective or a very American kind of perspective in, in some of those ways of diagnosing somebody. And so maybe some of the cultural differences are not taken for account. Um, and I'm not as fluent in kind of speaking for examples, but I definitely know that, you know, when we go in to provide treatment early on, some of the first things I used to say was, can this child feed themselves? And now I have a seven-year-old that I still feed because that's mm. a cultural norm. And mm. yes, he can feed himself, but that would be by no means the first thing that I would want to work on. And so mm. how do we consider cultural context um, into, you know, identifying the need for a diagnosis, the actual diagnosis, and then that treatment there. Mm. And is there... 
is there access to those sorts of things in India uh, and in some of these countries? I mean, I, obviously, if, I mean, I know some, I've heard of stories of some, and this isn't sort of India specific, but of sort of folks from coming, moving to North America from other countries because there aren't services or there aren't diagnoses or whatever available. And so they want to kind of come over here where there's more things available and they can access like, are there those sorts of things in there? Is is there a sort of services for autism in general in India and so on? Yeah, it's actually expanding quite a bit. Mm. And I, um, I don't know firsthand in terms of, you know, what those services look like, but I mm. am starting to hear from a lot more parents that, you know, they're taking a year off and moving to India to take, to take services. So it's kind of switching right now. Mm. Um, I've actually had a um, couple of families that over the last, you know, four or five years tell me that maybe I should say before or after pandemic, say that they actually went to India. And because of that village setting, because there's just so many more opportunities for communication, engagement, socialization, they're seeing massive differences in their child's development, just in wow. that kind of um in the space that they were. And so, again, these are just kind of a handful of kind of points and families that have shared that with me. I know more so on that professional lens. Um, I'm a, a big part of a um, South Asian mental health kind of group. And these psychologists and psychiatrists, they're noticing that a lot of their clients that they're providing therapy for, they're actually pausing, you know, Western therapy and, you know, seeking remote um, therapy from India because the India hmm. perspectives really understanding what those cultural needs are is very different than how we would apply therapy here. Hmm. Um, so actually, just this weekend there was a cool um, kind of um, unity between the Western and Eastern kind of philosophies of um, psychology and really discussing how do you work with Indian families in America using Indian belief systems and Indian structures. And so mm. it's been really fascinating to see that develop just very recently. And, you know, my world, maybe it's been developing for a long time, but mm -hmm. it a lot more is that there's a lot of movement happening in India right now, specifically. And um, how, how do we understand um, that we still need to incorporate those philosophies and those perspectives when we're providing treatment or therapy um, to the clients that we're working with here because mm. generalization here but most South Asian most you know Indian families are still very connected in that cultural and the roots in the community and the, that's a strong part of the values mm -hmm. you have to be using that same language and that same value system to be able to um, provide treatment that's appropriate for them. So these this these therapies, these sort of culturally based therapies or whatnot in India that folks are doing, are they like are they ABA or are they are they just are they sort of more traditional things like like or are they kind of like what are, what are they doing over there? Yeah, some of the groups that I'm connected to, there is very heavy um, kind of uh, influence of ACT in the the one big group that I'm connected to right. in across India. Um, so they practice a lot of ACT and, you know, they're doing cool. a lot. Of... No, I just said cool. Yeah. 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 
they're doing a lot more um, therapy based. So less autism, mm. less ABA. Um, mm. So I am not linked up with any ABA kind of groups. Now, that being said, from the stories that I hear from families, they are going and they are seeking ABA and they mm. are um, finding some sort of resources that are helpful for their children. Um, I've not yet come across that, but mm. it sounds to me that it definitely exists. And, it, you know, the it's funny because when I wake up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning or get woken up at four o'clock in the morning, I see all of these messages from my India ACT group on my WhatsApp. And it's, mm. it's so wonderful to see their perspective of how they're, you know, talking about case studies or they're talking about the way that ACT, again, is rooted in that Eastern, you know, science and the Eastern philosophy. Right. And the conversations that they have of connecting the dots between this is what the science is saying, and this is how we can talk to our clients this way, it really kind of aligns so beautifully. And so that's always fascinating to me because I don't do I don't do therapy, I don't you know practice act in that regard. Mm. Um, but I'm always trying to be open and learn about you know what these groups are doing, and it's it's been really fun to see that. Yeah, no, it's interesting just in general how you know how ACT has been able to get around the world and get yeah. into a lot of different countries that don't do ABA, that have never even heard of ABA, um, don't realize ACT is based in ABA in some ways, but um, uh, but but they're doing it. And, and uh, you know, it, ACT has really done a great job of, you know, disrupting and, and getting into places where we have not done such a good job. Yeah. Mm. So, in terms of sort of for folks that are working over here, um, with with you know with uh, South Asian families and whatnot, um, you know, I know there are, and, and I have this conversation every time I talk to someone from a different culture that works to work in a different culture that you can't sort of make, and you've you've alluded to this already. You can't sort of make sweeping generalizations about cultures and you know that every, everyone's going to want the same thing and they're there they're obviously you have to have that individual focus and you've got to really you know i think there's some really good resources now around how to do like culturally culturally responsive assessment and whatnot and you know i know the the Jimenez gomez article that came out around self-assessment of, of your own biases and whatnot and there's some really you know some really important things you can do sort of individually but there, I think all cultures also do tend to have some things that are common, you know, and um, and 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 worth considering, sort of, um, when you're getting in there. And I think some of those are related to some of those values you talk about. So, what are kind of maybe some of the some of the things folks might run into if they're if they're providing treatment? I mean, I, I think obviously the, the I think you've alluded to this as well that that the, the ideal would be to have you know, RBTs and BCBAs that are actually from those communities providing that service. And I think most folks from different cultures would prefer to have someone from their own, uh, particularly with the language piece, um, provide those services. But, and, and we will get into that in a second, but, but before that, when you don't, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking the percentage of BCBAs right now that are that are South Asian is probably low. Do you, I don't know if you know the numbers. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing it's probably, I mean, I know, I think 
I just had an interview yesterday with um, uh, a bunch of folks from the, the Latino community. And I think between BCBAs and RBTs and whatnot, it was around 20%. I think I think Black folks, BCBAs just, it's like under four, include everybody with RBTs. It's like 10%. Um, and, then, and then it starts to get smaller and smaller with Asia and whatnot into the sort of 1%, less than 1% down to indigenous at like 0.04% or something ridiculous um, like that, which, you know, which checks out because I think I know the four in Canada um, uh, <laughs> and whatnot. Um, what are, what are some things that we, the, the sort of, I guess, non South Asian practitioners in particular need to be considering when you're, when you're going into work with a South Asian family? Everyone wants to have control of their life, to make their own choices, decisions, and set goals that are meaningful and important to them. And students who are neurodivergent are no exception. Self-determined research indicates a host of positive quality of life outcomes for people who are neurodivergent, including better employment and independent living outcomes. Whether your students want to attend college or obtain employment after high school, they will need to acquire the skills necessary to pursue career life directions that are personally meaningful and are of their own volition. The self-determination course offered by CBI is an ideal tool for teachers to help students develop the essential competencies for self-determined behavior. The course consists of five modules with comprehensive lesson plans that are, include embedded resources easily adapted for your diverse learners. Using the built-in self-reflection and assessment exercises, teachers can assess students' growth towards their self-determination and self-advocacy behaviors. If you're interested in learning more, check out the CBI Consultants webpage at www.cbiconsultants.com. The third secret word is disclose. Yeah, I mean, I want to say that, first of all, going to the, the data or the demographics there. Um, South Asia is not even on the map for mm. <laughs> There's the bucket of Asia, right? And right. So, um, I think it's like five or six percent of ACB is the South Asian is not there. Not even there. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I've always been very, very passionate about that employment. Um, it, it not only helps that individual kind of get in the door, get a job and find a career, uh, but it goes beyond that. It goes exactly what you're saying is that, you know, language barrier is a huge part of that lack of access. If somebody's coming into my home and again, going to make some big generalized comments. I don't want to offend any, mm -hmm. of, um, you know, South Asians that are listening or kind of, um, you know, following here, but most families have a joint family type of system. So they may have, um, you know, grandparents in the home, they may have mm -hmm. extended families, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins sure. that play a big part of their home life. And so when you have that, there also may be that natural language barrier for, you know, not just the parent or somebody else that's a primary caregiver for that child. And I think oftentimes we just, you know, sit down with the parents as like, okay, you guys are our points. Um, but that's something to consider really even asking who is the primary caregiver um, because if we're going to create this beautiful behavior plan and we're going to get the buy-in from, you know, our caregiver, that's not really going to be there during our sessions or during parent training, then mm. we need to, you know, pivot a little bit and we need to really consider 
how will that other caregiver respond or how will they, um, mm. how, will, how can we get the buy-in for them? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's this idea or sorry, there's this research that, you know, talked about that 75% of parents reported that they didn't even reveal their child's, you know, ASD diagnoses. It just in the fear of isolation. So mm. being this kind of collective kind of community oriented culture the stigma is so strong that you know we have families that are that you know don't want to be isolated from that group and they don't want to have that label and say hey my child has this need or this um special need and now all of a sudden I'm going to be the one that's not invited to these events or Mm. the one that people look at when we you know go into temple or you know do these cultural activities. And so really being able to understand, you know, where the com- the family's comfort level currently even is in terms mm. of, you know, who are they disclosing? What type of support do they need? Um, and some of that would be outside of our scope as providers. Most of it would be, right? And so we can mm-hmm. give that training, but having families, um, caregivers, parents really cope with that and get services for themselves or encouraging them to do that to um, you know, or maybe even using act principles kind of around that to really stay in that present moment and really support the needs of their child um, is important. So, mm. I mean, outside of that, I think the the big pieces that really kind of um, stand out is that, you know, big families, large families, family plays a massive role. You know, if the, your child is behaving a certain way, it kind of goes back to, oh, you're doing a good job parenting. You're not doing so good. And so it's immediately kind of connected to that. So how do you um, how do you kind of disconnect that parent to say, you know, this is your your child is struggling here. These are the ways that we can change the narrative around this misbehavior to know they they're trying to communicate. And how do how can we be on the same page in terms of meeting their needs? Um, and parents feeling more confident within that. What what are what are barriers to sort of getting more, you know, South Asian practitioners in in the field, and or or what 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 needs to be done, or what is being done, or what can we do? Yeah, you know, um, I don't see a lot being done in that, and I think that that's, yeah. that's the piece that I'm very very passionate about. Um, yeah, lines a lot with. Um, work that I'm already doing in terms of the employment or the shift to employment, um, you know, whenever possible throughout my career, I have always, um, you know, gone to different groups of our, you know, and I can speak to my group. So my group being Punjabi or, you know, having that small influence in that small community, going to, you know, our Gurdwaras, which is our temples, going to, you know, um, different Punjabi um organizations that have, you know, young adults, high school, college kind of um, community members in talking about these topics of there is this career, there's this field that exists that nobody knows about yet. And how do we get you into it? And I think that there's still a lot more room that of work, there's a lot more work that still can be done. Mm. Because even within that, um, you know, not everyone wants to work in the field and the way that the field is currently designed, going to people's homes, providing these services. I mean, when I first started, it wasn't the best highlight that I reported to my family that, hey, I'm going to be doing this job. And it was a lot of, 
but wait a minute, you're going to go to their house and like, you have to drive around to different places. Like what's your title? What's your role? You know, it was a lot of confusion in terms of like, what is this? Like, are you babysitting? You know, Mm. a lot of not understanding. And, you know, back then I didn't really understand what the role was. Mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm, excited to have that opportunity and kind of learn and grow. Um, So there is still a lot of, um, you know, inaccessibility in terms of even making this role appealing, right? Um, But I think that within that appeal, the big thing that spoke to me was, hey, this is, this is going to hit all my check marks. I love, I love learning something new, this, this Mm. concept of behavior science. Wow. What is this? This is fascinating. And at that company, at that time, the first company that I had joined, um, the the first supervisor that I met now is a really good friend of mine. She said, you should have enrolled in these classes. And I said, I love school. So great. I'll do that. So it just kind of hit those check marks for me. And again, it was speaking to my values. It was speaking to what's going to be important for me to keep moving in my career, in my development. Um, and so when I do talk to people, I, I try to, I try to create that visual for them and say, you enter here, these are, these are things you're doing. These are the ways you can kind of move up. And these are all the opportunities you can get. Um, and so I do, you know, try to speak in, in those different places, but there's still a lot, a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think it can be really exciting for both the culture, the community, um, and, and definitely for the fields. I mean, we have a lot more South Asian families seeking support, seeking services, so much more. Um, and if we can increase the number of service providers, it can really benefit every, everyone. Hmm. You know, if there's been any kind of move to sort of create a bit of a I suppose kind of like an employee resource group, but a a bit of a community of South Asian behavior analysts that are practicing. I mean, we've we've seen this with Baba for for Black folks. Um, um, I mean, in ABA, we haven't seen it much beyond Baba, to be honest, um, as far as sort of uh, bringing other folks together. Uh, I, I know in just some of the research I've been doing, looking for guests and whatnot, there are a lot of sort of kind of culture-based groups in psychology and in social work. Um, you know, I, I found a, a, a Black Muslim group. I found, a, you know, a, a Society for Indian Psychologists, um, this Native Indian, I think, was, was that group. And, uh, you know, there's... there's um, you know, Asian social workers and Asian psychologists, and lots of different sort of those groups. But in ABA, there doesn't seem to be much of much much of anything going on. Um, and I know just from talking to so many folks from the Black behavior analyst community, most of them felt, you know, at some point in their life, like they were the only one they that looked like them practicing in their field. And when they got together, it was Kat Jackson in 2017 that started the the Black in ABA. Biba, I think, was called the Facebook group that said that, you know, suddenly announced to all these folks that they weren't the only ones, um, and it really kind of blossomed from there. Do you know if there has there been any is there anything like that 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 exists for sort of South Asian practitioners? Not that I know of, and maybe there is someone that's kind of doing some grassroots efforts that mm. I have I'm aware of, but yeah. I've been very very interested so maybe if there's somebody out there that wants to do this mm-hmm. 
me, I would love to do this. I think that, again, it just kind of goes down to how do we expand that cultural competency? How do we expand, yeah. you know, the quality of care that we're providing for our families and yet also um, expanding these career opportunities for, you know, you know young South Asians? Um, because South Asians are typically put on a track, doctor, engineer, lawyer. <laughs> Those tracks are very narrow in terms yeah. of what they can be doing. Um, but it's starting to change again. You know, you mentioned language in those in those mansions. In another ten years, those mansions are going to have you know those twenty eight people all speaking English because mm-hmm. things are changing. And so, within that, I mean, there's South Asians making. I mean, I can turn on Netflix and watch an actual Indian Punjabi movie that that didn't exist. I mean, my right. children, yeah. Mira, the royal detective on Disney, and that's you know, they watch that and they most of the Hindi words that they know because we speak Punjabi at home is mm. from Mira, the royal detective. That's wow, that doesn't exist like that's you know, it's hard for me to understand that. Yeah. And so, you know, within that, I think it, it's time for us to elevate ABA and elevate our science um, to a population that's not yet, um, you know, as familiar with it, and so mm. why not? able to do that so i i would love to be a part of those initiatives and if somebody already is doing it i would i would love to support and help with that well you might want to just make the move that kat jackson made in 2017 she just went and started a facebook group called it you know blacks and behavior analysis and it skyrocketed from there four years three years later they had a conference and now it's you know now they're one of the sort of the biggest sort of you know, groups in ABA that are doing really, really cool stuff and started with a Facebook group. So that might be your ticket. You're, you're motivating me. I thought about this a couple of times. And yeah. I, have, I have definitely reached out to people and, you know, a lot of people are very interested and they think it's just a matter of just making it happen. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I will, I will happily spread the word for anything you, you, you get into for sure. Uh, that's awesome. So Kind of just uh, wrapping up. What's what's some of the stuff you got kind of coming up? Yeah, um, let's see. I am particularly excited about some of the new. Um, I'm going to be doing an educational series for a local chamber meeting here. Um, so again, that for me that was a big win. I didn't think that um, mm. business chamber of commerce here would be interested, yeah. in today, but they've invited me back for. Um, an educational seminar to their awesome. um, you know, that stuff is exciting working and, you know, learning more about supporting employment um, through the perspectives of people that are already doing it. There are local mm-hmm. adult schools. Um, there's a local mom's group that, you know, are doing these pop-up shops that, you know, really have so much more kind of, um, uh, potential to kind of grow and kind of getting their children to, or you, they're young adults at this point to practice some of these employment skills. And mm. very excited about you know my partnership and collaboration with uh, Behavior Management Solutions. Mm. Billy Kent is actually the owner there, and I thought Billy I a reaction there. <laughs> um, so he says hi. Hi, Billy. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Yeah. No, Billy was. Uh... My uh, for a short stint, he was the clinical director at the job I had before this. Yeah, 
Fun. Yeah, he says a big hello to you and was really excited for our, our chat today. And oh, so awesome. Yeah, and he's done so much amazing work within the vocational, um, you know, part as well. I don't know if that's what you guys worked on together, but you know, his kind of background, his education, and you know, just all the knowledge that he has in supporting um, his small organization here in the East Bay. It's just been really phenomenal to work with him. And majority of the work that we do is within school districts and getting one-to-one aids in the district. Um, but we're starting to venture off to doing some more workshops for general education classrooms um, and getting some of our job coaching kind of clients to kind of go through that group um, and utilize our RVTs and our supervisors to support the job coaching kind of needs. Um, so it's been really fun to work with him and kind of grow that out. Really cool. Billy, gosh, I didn't even know Billy left Canada. That's that's how out of the loop I am. Uh, right on. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, well, uh, really, really cool to talk to you and learn a little bit about uh, South Asian communities, a little bit about neurodiversity in the workplace. And 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 will be cool to see what kind of comes next. And who knows, maybe a, a South Asian behavior analyst community in the works. Yeah, that would be great. You can put me in touch with all the Canadian South Asians. That would be fantastic. Happy to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Cool.